Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Uh, hello and welcome. So um, we're, we're going to transition now from uh, Polish immigrants to the current situation where Poland has a potential for becoming a destination for migrants rather than a producer of migrants. Um, so as you have all seen in the news lately, I'm sure, um, there have recently been a large number of refugees who have left the Middle East, South Asia, North Africa, and a number of other regions of turmoil and headed for Europe. Um, and immigration, as a result of that, has become the battleground for a clash of civilizations. Um, although it's not obvious just by looking at it, because most of the, the conflict has been centered in the UK and France and Germany, uh, the fact is that that clash is likely to have the greatest effect on the nations of the Intermarium, in particular Poland and Hungary. Now, why is this true? At first blush, it seems counterintuitive. Poland and Hungary have flat out refused to fall prey to the utopian delusions that have gripped the European Union and to a large extent the United States. Um, Poland and Hungary actually lost a, uh, a case before the European Court uh, regarding whether they were required to take the quotas of refugees that the EU was specifying. And it's had very little real effect because the EU has not wanted to pursue the type of conflict that would be necessary in order to force them to take the, uh, the ostensible quotas of migrants. Um, and both Poland and Hungary have pushed back against the EU actions uh, very forcefully. But simply put, it comes down to geography. Geography is destiny. It's physical geography as well as cultural geography. Uh, the Intermarium uh, sits across the great divide between the physical East and West, but it also sits astride the cultural divide between Western Judeo-Christian culture and the westernmost reaches of the Islamic world. So if you look at the map here, this is the, the Intermarium, and of course it shows Poland and Hungary. Um, but it also shows the relative uh, proximity of Turkey and the uh, rest of Eastern Europe. Um, now if we can get to the next slide. These are the smuggling routes um, that are used by the majority of migrant smugglers trying to bring people into Europe. So whether they like it or not, as recent experience has proven, Poland and Hungary sit on several of the preferred out-migration paths from Central Asia, the Turkic world, South Asia, and the Middle East. Now, the migrant smuggling routes that we're all familiar with from the media are shown here in blue, which is the West African route, brown, which is the Western Mediterranean route, purple, uh, which is the Central Mediterranean route, and black, which is the circular route, which goes between Albania and Greece over to Italy, up the boot of Italy, and into Europe. The less common but more significant migrant smuggling routes are seen here in red, which is the Western Balkan route, light blue, which is the Eastern Borders route, and green, which is the Eastern Mediterranean route. Now, according to the European Parliament, in 2015, there were approximately 764,000 migrants who are smuggled into Europe by the Western Balkan route. So Western Balkan route, that's the one that's, that's dictated in red, 
roughly 885,000 migrants were smuggled into Europe by the Eastern Mediterranean route, which is the one shown in green. Another 1,900 or so migrants were smuggled into Europe by the Eastern Borders route, which is the one that's shown in light blue. Uh, excuse me, light blue. The, uh, the end game, of course, is for the vast majority of these individuals to get into UK, France, and Germany. And of course, the UK, France, and Germany have been very generous up to this point in accepting people. However, I actually presented a version of this paper in Germany this summer, um, and the Germans are starting to get very frustrated. The French are beginning to get very frustrated, and the Brits are, are getting certainly conflicting messages, but I think that the, uh, the Brexit vote was driven largely by migration. Um, now, if you look at these routes, what happens when France and Germany and the UK stop taking people? Well, the Eastern Mediterranean route easily links the Western Balkan route and the Eastern Borders routes, and both of these routes either terminate in the Intermarium itself or in close proximity to it. So given that Poland and Hungary have clearly stated that they will not be subjected to EU refugee quotas, and given that much of the Intermarium region, Finland, Estonia, the other Baltic states seem prepared to either follow the lead of Poland and Hungary or accept only a very limited number of migrants, there's a very distinct possibility that Poland, Hungary, and the entire Intermarium region could inadvertently become the victim of a flood of migrants. Now, why is this a concern? Well, the UN High Commissioner, I mean, it's obvious to some people, I hear some snickering, but there are very many people who don't think it's a concern. But I'm going to try and point out why I think it's a very real concern. Um, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees estimates that there are currently over 65 million people who are either refugees or internally displaced persons. The uh, population of the Earth hovers somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 billion at the current time. And the fact is that probably close to half of those people are just terminally disgusted with the situation in which they live and they want to go somewhere else. Now, many of those people are not politically sophisticated. They're not economically sophisticated. They're not trying to fix the situation. They just don't want to be in the situation that they're in. That means that any place with a stable economy and a, a culture that provides significant social benefits is going to be a desired destination. And of course, Poland, Hungary, Estonia are all countries with um, economies that are first world economies, and even if they don't stack up completely the same as, say, France or the UK, they're pleasant places to live. They have great universities, they have great social services, they have great hospitals. So if you are someone who is upset with your situation in Africa or in the Middle East, these are places that suddenly if the UK and Germany and France and the United States become less available, are going to now become popular destinations for people who are migrating. Now, the other problem with this is the vast majority of the people who are on the move currently are not people from Western Europe or North America or Australia or a background similar to what any of those places have. They hail from nation states that are outside the Western Judeo-Christian sphere, and the vast majority of the conflicts they're fleeing are directly attributable to the fact that their nations have been governed according to philosophies that are incompatible with Western democracy and Western free market capitalism. And this is a particular concern with regard to Islam. Now, Anytime I make this type of assertion, it tends to provoke cries of racism or xenophobia. 
But those claims are utterly spurious because Islam is a race. It's a political religious philosophy. It is far from monolithic, and it applies to people from all races and colors. Xenophobia refers to an irrational fear of persons from another race. Our fear of Islam, or at the very least political religious Islam, is no more irrational than fear of communism, socialism, fascism, or any other totalitarian form of government. And the fact is that the risk of terrorism associated with radical Islam, or caliphatism, as Professor Hodkiewicz likes to call it, um, it's only part of the story. There has been a massive influx of Muslim migrants into Europe over the last five years, and they have arrived in numbers large enough to begin exerting political influence, whether that be through legitimate political processes, uh, through appeals to political correctness and global internationalism, or flat out through mob violence. Now, Edward J. Erler of the Claremont Institute, who studies immigration, has said that a radical change in the character of the citizens of the United States would be tantamount to a regime change just as surely as a revolution in its political principles. Well, I think he could have put that much more succinctly and universally. A radical change in the character of the citizens of any nation will inevitably constitute a revolution in its political principles. If you have people who have a different mindset come in in large waves, and they don't adapt to the mindset of the people living in a particular area, you're going to experience political change. That political change is often violent, and it's often sudden. So it's a principle that holds true for the, the entirety of Western civilization, not just the United States, not just democracy. Now, according to Professor Ada Bozeman, who studied culture and politics, a culture is a collection of values, norms, institutions, and modes of thinking to which successive generations attach primary importance. Now, Andrew Breitbart, not as distinguished a scholar as Ada Bozeman, but nonetheless a keen observer of political life in, in the United States and in the world in general, posited a key corollary to Bozeman's definition of culture. He said that politics is always downstream of culture, or more simply put, political principles are a product of culture. Both Dr. Bozeman and Professor Samuel Huffington discussed the clash, excuse me, discussed the clash of civilizations. Now, in some ways, that's kind of a dramatic term. Clearly, Huntington came up with that to sell books. Bozeman addressed the issue but never actually used the term. But the fact is that we are in the midst of a clash between the part of the world that was built on the Judeo-Christian moral and intellectual tradition and the part of the world where Islam is the predominant source of both political and social norms. And the intermarium, Poland and Hungary in particular being the two most politically sophisticated, largest economies and most vociferous countries in the region, are sitting astride the front lines on one of the major fronts in the conflict between the Judeo-Christian West and the Islamic East. What's more, the region also sits astride the front lines of the conflict between Judeo-Christian democracy and Soviet-style socialism that simply refuses to die even in places like France and Germany. And for our purposes, we should view socialism as an all-encompassing secular religion which makes the state the source of political and social norms. So at present, the intermarium finds itself in a situation very similar to what it did in World War II. I'm going to paraphrase Dr. Hodikiewicz, squeezed between two totalitarianisms. 
Now this means that the nations of the region are extremely vulnerable to what I call silent invasion by migration. Um, Robert Spencer has written a number of books about this. Uh, he talked about stealth jihad uh, with reference specifically to Islamic extremism. But the fact is that if you are a country that has problems, uh, political, cultural, economic, or otherwise, you can very frequently stabilize your own situation by sending migrants somewhere else. Uh, one of the reasons the Mexican regime has lasted as long as it has is because it sends people to the United States and they send huge remittance payments back to Mexico, which stabilize the current Mexican government. That's something that can be deliberately exploited. The Muslim Brotherhood and uh, some of the other Islamist organizations have intentionally said that they want to take over the West by invading it and changing its cultural norms. That's particularly significant for the Intermarium because the nations there, Poland, Hungary, Estonia, not so much Finland, but the remainder of the Baltic states, are just regaining their footing after a century of Soviet domination. And they're in the process of rebuilding both traditional political institutions and traditional cultural institutions. The last thing that they need is a sudden shift in the character of their citizens because a shift in the character of their citizens of the type that's brought by large numbers of Muslims who expect those countries to adopt Muslim, Islamic, legal, and cultural norms could prove fatal as these countries are trying to stabilize and establish themselves as permanent democracies with their traditions that pre-existed the Soviet Empire and Soviet domination of the region. So the obvious questions come to mind, why and how might those types of changes come about? And the answers are both simple and complex. Uh, Islamic and Judeo-Christian culture developed around essentially the same fundamental conflict, which was a battle between rationalism and irrationalism. Now in the West, the rationalists carried the day. In the Muslim world, the Mutazilite rationalists squared off against the Azurite anti-rationalists, and the Azurite anti-rationalists won. Now, the best discussion of this philosophical conflict comes from a book written by Robert R. Riley called The Closing of the Muslim Mind. And he had an interesting quote that kind of sums up the difference in worldview or epistemological view of the Islamic world versus the, the Western Judeo-Christian world. And according to the Islamic conception, God is pure will and power, unbound by anything, including his own word. Therefore, nothing is right or wrong in and of itself. It is right or wrong only according to what God says. Now, this, of course, flies directly in the face of Judeo-Christian thought, which is largely an attempt to reconcile faith and reason. In fact, Augustine and Aquinas celebrated reason as a means to gain insight into divine intention. And one of the central tenets of Western thought is that the good life is best achieved when there is a division between the secular and the spiritual authorities, mm -hmm. the former responsible for order and justice, the latter for morals and faith. And due to the transcendent moral worth of each person in the eyes of God, no government can demand complete submission of body and soul because no government is God. And this is the fundamental spiritual temporal divide that most of us are so familiar with, either from August, uh, Augustine's City of God or the Protestant Two Kingdoms theory. By contrast, Islam's restrictive view of revelation meant that no tradition of public constitutional law could develop because the constitution of the community cannot be other than the will of God revealed through his prophet. 
uh, in Politics and Culture in International History, which was Ada Bozeman's book. Um, there's two of her books which are particularly fantastic. One is The, uh, the Future of Law in the International World. Um, she has really fantastic discussions of how the fundamental modes of thought that affect a particular culture then give rise to its political and legal institutions and how that tends to affect the way that those that countries in that area or nation states that develop according to those traditions will be governed and what kind of a, a political, moral, and philosophical lifestyle they'll pursue. Now, if you take a look at what she said in plain English, it simply means that Muslim scripture serves as the constitutional documents governing all spheres of life, resulting in a complete commingling of the political and spiritual realms. Now, while you may have nominally, in a number of Islamic countries, constitutions that mirror our own, the fact is, they aren't really the same thing as the constitution that we have, or the British notion of a constitution, or even the French notion of a constitution. Uh, Roger Scruton, British philosopher who teaches at the University of Buckingham, uh, has observed, Law as Islam understands it is a demand for our obedience, and its author is God. Now, that's the complete opposite of the Western concept of law. And it also places Islam in a sort of odd situation where, although it's classed as a religion, it tends to mirror totalitarian philosophies like fascism and socialism. Uh, both Bernard Lewis and Bertrand Russell, among others, have noted a similarity between Islam and communism, and that both require the subordination of all societal aspirations to considerations of societal and political power. Now, how is all of this connected to migration? and to refugees on the move. Well, as George Washington, James Madison, Winston Churchill, Edmund Burke, Margaret Thatcher, and a number of others have observed in different forms, democracy can only survive with a democratically-minded population. You must have people who think democratically in order to have democratic government. The sudden arrival of massive numbers of people who have no experience of democracy and a cultural background that's inherently anti-democratic is a recipe for disaster. It's proven itself to be that in Germany. Uh, when I was in Germany, the uh, state of Bavaria, law enforcement in Germany belongs to the states rather than to the federal government. Uh, so a lot of the immigration policing is handled by the state police forces in Bavaria, which had traditionally had an immigration police force, had just reconstituted it uh, when I was there and had turned it loose. And uh, while my wife and I were in the train station in Nuremberg, they actually were out checking people's papers and arresting a large number of refugees, uh, supposed refugees, who apparently had either been ordered removed or denied refugee status. Um, so it was interesting to, to see the reaction in Germany actually take in up, yes, in Bavaria specifically, to start to take operational effect. Now, Bavaria is unique because it's a strikingly Catholic state and it has, has uh, throughout its history had a status as a free state and a number of free cities within it. So it's, it's somewhat politically unique. But it was interesting to see that cultural tradition in the way that Ada Bozeman talked about it directly influencing politics today in Bavaria. Now, in and of itself, mass migration from anywhere doesn't have to be from uh, necessarily the Islamic world can be a significant threat because a culture can die from simple dilution if enough foreigners arrive and refuse to assimilate. Um, a large enough number of Italians 
Uh, Thomas Jefferson always liked to use the example of the French, I'm not sure why, but if the French or Italians had arrived in the United States and simply refused to be anything other than what they are, then the United States would resemble France or Italy much the way that Quebec resembles alarmingly so France, uh, more so than Her Britannic Majesty's dominions in the rest of Canada. Um, now, part of the problem that you have with this when you have people migrating from a society which is basically antithetical to the one that they're arriving in, um, is what Roger Scruton talks about as the phenomenon of Muslims who ostensibly seek refuge in the West, only to insist that the West should implement Islamic legal and moral norms. Now, if you stop and think about that, we tend to give refuge because we think that people are fleeing from something bad. And yet, very frequently what we see is that people flee and then they insist that we make everything more like home for them after they have fled, which sort of defeats the whole purpose of giving them refuge in the first place. And it should make us stop and think about whether we are doing assimilation correctly in the age of political correctness. So, how do we actually confront this threat if we are in the intramarium and we are looking at this, as Poland and Hungary have done, uh, from the standpoint of, gee, Germany has taken about all the people it can get. Uh, we are directly on a route that brings people to Hungary's border. Uh, Austria is growing very tired of this whole situation, and we may now be the next destination. Well, they should do exactly what they've been doing, and keep doing it vociferously. Uh, they should fearlessly assert the primacy of the Western Judeo-Christian tradition, and I think that Viktor Orban in Hungary has been particularly effective at saying that one of the reasons that Hungary has been hesitant to accept the migrants is because where they're coming from, the way they have behaved when they reach the West, and the fact that Hungary intends to stay a Western Christian nation. Now that's something that we are afraid of doing, but Hungary and Poland have been forced into the position where they don't have the luxury of being politically correct in this situation. Um, of course, the advantage to that is that they can be truthful and just lay it on the line. Uh, I think that the countries there, as well as the United States and, and other Western destinations for migrants, have to continue to resist what James Burnham, who wrote a fantastic book on the uh, demise of Western culture. The title is uh, escaping me right now, but I think it's, it's just called The Fall. Suicide of the West. Suicide of the West, yes. Fantastic book and well worth reading. 1961. Charles um, Yes. Last year. Um, and get it on Amazon. It's a fantastic read. Um, yes. But we need to continue to resist, and particularly those states that are on the borderline of this conflict need to resist what Burnham called the tendency of modern liberalism to see Western principles and customs, as well as Western religion, as obstacles to human progress. And it's interesting because Poland and Hungary, with their recent experience with communism, are in a position where they see Western culture as an alternative to the problems that came up with communism. Communism, of course, is all based on the notion that human nature is perfectible and that human progress has nothing to do with divine intervention. It only has to do with applying the right pressures and, and the right philosophies to human experience so that we can perfect ourselves, essentially replacing the divine with the human. Now, much of the intermarium, because it has, was so heavily under that yoke 
of Soviet influence and that pernicious philosophy is much more receptive to the benefits of Judeo-Christian culture of the Western philosophical and intellectual tradition. So they have been much more willing to defend that. However, the fact is that up against the force of the European Union, which is a powerful political entity, up against criticisms from other countries that they're not being politically correct enough, it is possible that these countries may slowly, incrementally begin to accede to the demands of the EU and of the other surrounding regional political organizations uh, and start taking people. And start taking people from you know, not just Islamic countries, but from other places uh, in Africa and the developing world as well. Now, that is one of the major problems with immigration and one of the things that the U.S. is struggling with right now. Assimilation tends to work well when you have a strong culture that people say, hey, we've got a good here. You come here and you want to be part of our political community, then you need to assimilate to our ways of thinking and our political philosophy our culture. When you insist that people do that and you manage migration in small enough numbers, then it tends to be successful. Um, over the past year, I've been in France a couple of times, and it's really shocking because most of the police officers that you see on the streets and most of the military people that you see on the streets because of the huge security presence are people who have come from North Africa and have come from uh, former French colonies in the Islamic world. And they are completely assimilated, they're very proud to be French, they're very proud to be in the military and proud to be defending France. Um, much of that has happened because of those people's desire to benefit from what they found in France. It unfortunately has not happened from France's insistence that they assimilate to French culture. It's interesting because the French, in terms of their political and diplomatic interactions, view French culture as the, the sine qua non of everything in the world, uh, but when it comes time to actually request that immigrants assimilate to the best culture in the universe, they're much more reluctant to tell people that they should abandon their previous traditions and adopt that which is French. Finally, I, I, countries like Poland and Hungary find themselves at, at the edge of the, the Western world have to build and instill pride in the contributions that they specifically have made to Western culture. We heard in the, the previous presentation, which was fascinating, all about the uh, contributions that Poles uh, throughout the world made to defending freedom, uh, not only in Poland, not only regaining Polish independence, but defending the United States and defending the other countries in Western Europe. Um, Poles and the Hungarians and the Estonians and the Finns and everyone else in that region need to keep doing just that. Uh, they need to readopt the process that the United States was so heavily involved in during the Cold War of engaging in Moscow defense of the West. One thing is certain, incremental submission to the politically correct notion that the nations of the West must accept anyone who is ostensibly fleeing oppression which usually is a code word for fleeing a decaying non-Western culture, that will inevitably result in the death of the Judeo-Christian world as we know it because we simply don't have the resources or the room to take everyone who does not want to be where they are. And the fact is that we need to tell people in some of these countries that are failing and some of these cultures that are failing that people are required to take responsibility for their own political destiny. 
Poland is a perfect example of that. It threw off the yoke of communism. It rebuilt its institutions. And it's now in a position where it is poised to become one of the leading democracies in Europe. That could all fall apart if Poland backs off of asserting its sovereignty and begins to accept large numbers of migrants, particularly from the Islamic world. Um, so that's the situation that we're in. It's interesting that um, Poland and Hungary find themselves in a situation very similar to that of the United States. Uh, this is something that certainly isn't going to go away, but I think it's something that is going to become increasingly more significant for the countries in the Intermarian region. So thank you. I love when you come back to our WP. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, our own Mount O'Brien, as I told you before. Uh, the, there are some profound questions here, and there are some tidbits. One is of civilizations. Professor Felix Konechne posited back in the 30s a, propos a, a following proposition. A human being cannot be civilized in two ways. The simplest the simplest way to understand this is to watch a couple of Mel Brooks movies where Mel Brooks visits a civilization where people, instead of saying hi, slap each other on the face. Now imagine if you, from the American culture, that puts much store into personal space, had to deal every day with people who say hi to you by slapping you on the face. It is silly, yes, and it's annoying. So if you go as a guest to a place like this, you have to adjust. Or maybe it was Three Stooges or Marx Brothers, I forgot. But it's one of those. When you go there, you have to adjust. You simply, this is, um, you go uh, to Rome and you do as, uh, as the Romans do. However, if people come to, people like that come to America, where Americans don't like this. Forget about slapping faces. We, I, I've seen that dance with the Europeans, Europeans getting close to Americans and Americans walking away. Now, and I'm not going to go into religion and various other features of civilization. I'm just saying civilization comes from the word culture, culture means cult. Cult is how we have been socialized since the caves to do, to go about our daily business as well as to uh, appreciate the sublime of our culture. Well, when strangers come and they don't unjust, then we have Quebec with bombs at worst or just a completely different place. The French in Canada, they are not Anglos, even by culture. They're, they're French. I've met people who could hardly speak English in Quebec. Compare this to the Cajuns in Louisiana. It is America. Yes, they have their own dialects and uh, other peculiarities, but they are unmistakably American. And that is what I think Ma has been trying to convey. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, we hardly have any problems. As a California chauvinist, I can attest the Mexicans have been going back and forth forever and ever. Those who wanted to stay in America would learn English. 
And that was the key. Those who wanted to go back would go back home to Mexico. If, however, you proceed along the lines that are popular in the EU, don't expect success, don't expect integration, expect chaos. And for some, uh, two tidbits. Number one, Mats Mach doesn't go high enough. There's another route through the Arctic Circle. We <laughs> come into Norway. A couple of times people were caught on bicycles. They bicycled from Russia. I think those were people from Afghanistan. I don't remember, but they bicycled across the Arctic Circle <laughs> into Norway, which is really the fastest route. You go all the way up. That was during the summer, by the way. Yes. And the second tidbit is how similar and myopic the business world tends to be. Because Poland has now entered the ranks of developed countries, working class people, blue collars, demand appropriate salaries. They work hard, they would like to be appreciated and paid well. Guess what Polish businessmen, small and medium, have started to do? Import people from Bangladesh who are ignorant and do the same thing, not as well, but for next to nothing. So this is how things began in Belgium. We had a student here from Belgium who uh, wrote a huge paper on uh, the origins of the current crisis when Belgium, with American money, began recuperating from World War II. They needed labor, and it was, of course, Maghrebis and Turks. And then once the economy tanked, they tried to get rid of them. But those people said, I'm sorry, we came here, we don't want to leave. And since Belgium is democratic, there were no mechanisms really to perform Operation Wetback, which we did, even though we are democratic. This was last time in the 1950s when the United States government showed ruthless resolve to remove illegals. And Belgium simply found itself in a cul-de-sac. Whom do you want to invite? Now, Poland doesn't have Belgian problems mentality-wise because it used to be the Commonwealth with everybody, including Muslims. There are still Polish Tatars who are Muslim, and they go to the mosque. Culturally speaking, in the genetic code, when you say Polish, it means exactly what we mean by American. People from everywhere. I ad always admonish Poles, most of them because of communism have no idea who they are or what their family background is. I admonish them to find out or take a DNA test. It's culture. Culture that is the main factor that determines the shape of the nation, not the looks, not the genes. So the Tatars, Swedes, Armenians, <coughs> Germans, Italians, Ruthenians, everybody eventually became Polish. And it is a rather unique situation in Europe where 
uh, at least since the so-called enlightenment, they tried to look for purity. Again, use that. DNA test will set you free. You'll see that you come from very many people. <laughs> anyway, and now three questions. Yes, you mentioned, as far as I heard, that socialism is a totalitarian system. Am I correct, Herbert? Uh, no, I said that Islam is a, a totalitarian system like socialism. But like socialism, <laughs> but that means that socialism is also totalitarian? System? Yes, yes. Can you explain why? Uh, sure. So socialism is based on the notion that there are... How should I put it? It replaces the, the, the interaction uh, of the divine with the political, uh, with the notion that somehow there is a scientific law that can be understood and applied to perfect human progress in the absence of any influence from the divine. And so it's a utopianist notion that says that if you apply the iron laws of history correctly, that you can get the desired outcome. And therefore, because it, it's based on the equality of all people, which is a, an impossibility because we're not equal. Some of us are good at some things, some of us are good at other things. Um, it reduces everyone to the lowest common denominator in an attempt to impose equality. And the fact is that it's fundamental human nature to revolt against that kind of imposition of equality. I mean, the fact is capitalism is successful because if I'm interested in going out and becoming wealthy, I go out and I do it. If my neighbor is interested in becoming middle class and is happy that way, he or she stays that way. And when you try and put people to work for the benefit of other people and tell the talented they cannot profit from their own work, but they must give what they earn to other people, people tend to chafe and revolt against that. So of necessity, in order to apply socialism, you have to have totalitarian control of all aspects of society. Islam, similarly, does not allow for... Uh, if, so, and this is one of the things that I, I think confuses people. Everyone knows Muslims who have immigrated to the West have quasi-Westernized and practice their religion the way that we practice religion. It's something that there's a secular and temporal divide. But the fact is that those people would not be considered by the neighbors back in the old country to be good Muslims. They would be considered to be people who are practicing their faith incorrectly. Hypocrites, according to the Quran. Yes, according to the Quran, hypocrites. Um, so you know, one of the things that causes a problem is when we tend to look at Islam and people say it's a totalitarian system, people go, oh no, you know, I work with so-and-so and he's a great guy. But the fact is, much like socialism, Islam imposes a top-down order that has a certain type of religious equality. It's different than economic and social equality that you find in socialism. It imposes it from the top down, and of necessity has to control every aspect of life in order to accomplish that as well. I hope that answers your question. Uh, so, um, that is a term for the uh, nations that sit between the Baltic and the Black Seas. Um, the Adriatic. And, and the Adriatic. Um, it consists of uh, Poland, Finland, the Baltic states, Hungary. Um, am I missing Romania. 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 Oh. It's roughly what is called the, the new countries of the European Union. 
plus, plus the post-Soviet other post-Soviet Was it uh, derived from between the seeds? Inter Marium. Oh. Between the seeds. Okay. Yeah. It's derived from the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth of the fifth, uh, more or less 15th through the 18th century. Yeah, listen to your uh, lecture. I think culture, religion, ideology, is just throw them all out. People will come, well, I don't know about Polish Constitution. People who come to America, they have to live by the Constitution, you educate them. So in other words, it's law and order. You will take in asylum seekers, refugee immigrants, but they will have to follow the law. There's no such thing as because you're Islam and you are Latino, you get them. It's complete rubbish. America has always taken immigrants in. So I would say anybody who wants this country must be educated civically and live by the law. There's no such thing as because the Islam, the anti-West, you have to defend Judeo-Christianity. Look, America's strength is based on diversity, multi-ethnic, multi-cultural. That's what makes us. So I, I don't right. know what you are going to I don't have any issue with culture. I don't have issue with religion. Look at me. I do have issue with the law. Now, if someone comes in here and breaks the law, that you have to deal with. So if you admit people from four corners of the world, that's the basic standard for admission. That is based on the law of the United States under the Constitution of the United States. So that's under the Constitution of the United States. There is no race, religion, sex discrimination. You know that. So what is the issue well, here? Yeah, that, that's not Why true. is it Judeo versus Islam? Make no sense. Okay. Well, well, hold on. Let me, let me Questions, not speeches. If you'd like to deliver a speech, send us an email. We'll put you up and you can pontificate. Yeah, the question would be, if you're dealing with all of these immigrants and refugees, what standard would you admit them in? Well, you will admit the them in to become citizens. You don't admit them in in order you know, to kick them well, out. Well, actually, actually, we don't. We admit them in three different classes. We admit people who are non-immigrants, who are, are temporary visitors, who are admitted for limited purposes. We admit them as lawful permanent residents, who are people who intend to live here permanently, but there's no requirement they become citizens. And then we admit people as refugees and asylees and other special classes when people are given humanitarian aid. But I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. As a matter of policy, the United States is entitled to admit whoever it wants. Despite what the media has said recently, we're under no obligation to admit anyone simply because they show up and ask. We are a sovereign nation. The Immigration and Nationality Act specifically states that... The law. The law. The law. The Immigration and Nationality Act specifically states that we are entitled to admit people at our discretion as an incident of sovereignty. So as a matter of policy, I have spent 20 plus years working for the INS, ICE, USCIS, and in my experience, there are a large number of people who come from cultures that are distinct from the Judeo-Christian West who have trouble adapting to the United States, who frequently break the law, whether that be because they don't understand it, because they come from a different culture, because they simply do not want to obey it, I don't know. But the fact is that as an end result, I see people who are admitted here to supposedly live the American dream and, and to adopt the American way of life 
who don't do so, and as a result, wind up violating the law. Now, as far as culture goes, what language are you and I conversing in? English. Anybody who comes to the United States will have to speak English. They can keep their language. But I it's, speak it's four. the lingua. It's I keep mine, but I speak four. I speak four languages too. But the lingua franca that you and I are conversing in is English, which comes from England, which is the place where our legal tradition comes from as well. Um, and if you doubt that, take a look at America's English Roots, which is a fantastic book by Russell Kirk, or The Roots of American Order. The fact is that this country has a culture and a legal system and a concept of law and order that derive inherently from the Judeo-Christian Western tradition, but specifically through the English application of that. 